Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Today, we are returning to the book of Galatians. Back before Christmas, we began working through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And this morning, we're going to pick up in our text where we left off. It's been about 10 weeks now since we were last in this epistle together. So I'm going to briefly review where we are before we jump into today's message and text. The last time we were in Galatians, our text was chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. And in those verses, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian churches that he was astonished that they were so quickly deserting him who called them and instead returning to a different gospel. One which Paul reminded them was no gospel at all. Simply put, what the Galatians were turning to was a false gospel. Remember, Paul had previously traveled through the region of Galatia, preaching and teaching the good news of the gospel, and the Galatians had believed it and placed their trust in Jesus Christ. But after Paul left Galatia, religiously zealous men known as the Judaizers, moved upon the churches of Galatia and were falsely teaching the Galatians that the work of Christ upon the cross was insufficient alone. In order to be made right with God, the Judaizers told Christians that they also had to conform to the laws of Moses, specifically things like circumcision and the ceremonies were a requirement for them, so they taught. The Judaizers were wolves in sheep's clothing who falsely claimed that the Galatians needed to become converts to Judaism and to live according to the Jewish customs because these false teachers were teaching that Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews only. These Judaizers were attempting to undermine the free message of the gospel preached by Paul. They wanted to subvert it by mixing man's works into it and making it where it was man's ability to keep the Mosaic law and Christ's work upon the cross. And instead of rejecting this false teaching for what it was, after having been taught the true gospel, the Galatians were embracing it. And by doing so, the Galatians had themselves fallen into a terrible trap. The trap of legalism. Their salvation, so they now thought and believed, was in part based on what they did, the do's and the don'ts of their own actions. And with that, it stops being solely about what Christ has done. In our text last time, Paul boldly said in verses 8 and 9 of Galatians chapter 1 that anyone, even the apostle Paul himself or an angel of heaven, If they were to preach a different gospel from the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, that person is cursed. Paul was saying that anyone who teaches a different gospel than the one that was already faithfully preached to the Galatian churches was not only wrong, but they were also condemned. The Apostle Paul was not calling down a curse, but acknowledging that there is a curse. There is condemnation for those who utter a false gospel. Paul was not talking about someone who accidentally makes an incorrect theological statement. 
He's talking about those who willfully and knowingly distort the truth of the gospel for selfish gain. Remember that at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's already reminded his readers in verse 1 that he is an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul speaks not as a random rabbi. He's not a traveling, self-promoting evangelist or teacher. No, he speaks as one who's been called and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You may remember in our first message out of Galatians, I defined the word for apostle. I said that Paul carries apostolic authority because he is, in the Greek, the word apostolos. Apostolos. It means a messenger, a delegate, one who's commissioned to represent someone else. The Apostle Paul did not stand on his own authority, but he came as a herald of the gospel, charged and commissioned by the king. In the final verse we looked at last time, verse 10, the Apostle Paul wrote these words For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. But Paul is a servant of Christ and is writing these churches not to woo them, but to admonish them to return to what they had first believed from Paul's gospel preaching. He's calling them to reject false teachers and their false teachings and return to the gospel which he had delivered. This brings us to our text this morning, which is Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24. And Lord willing, we will wrap up chapter 1 today. I've titled today's message, Not Man's Gospel. Let us turn our attention to God's Word. Please join me as we read our text, Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 
and they glorified God because of me. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we approach your word, I ask that you would guard my mouth. That you would let only that which is from you and for you and for your glory and for the edification and the equipping of your people be retained by those who gather here today. Father, help us. Help me. As we seek to apply your word, I ask that you would convict, that you would sanctify and help us, your people, for your name and your glory. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Paul is writing his letter to refute the error and heresy that the Galatians were falling for. The message that Paul had preached throughout Galatia was now under serious attack by false teachers who sought to distort the gospel's free gift of salvation by chaining it to adherence to the law. In addition to Paul's message, the Judaizers were also doing everything they could to cast doubt and shadow on the legitimacy of Paul's authority. The Judaizers claimed that Paul had compromised the Jewish faith. These men questioned not only Paul's authority, but they also accused him of watering down Judaism for Gentile believers. You see, the message Paul preached called people to repent of sin and by grace, through faith, believe in Jesus Christ, who by his death, his burial, and resurrection had conquered over sin and the grave. Paul was not advocating that new believers be circumcised or obey certain ceremonies or submit to certain laws. Because as Christ has told them, Christ fulfilled the law. And this infuriated the Judaizers. Paul reminds his readers that the message he preached was not man's gospel. He tells them that the message he proclaimed to them did not come from the traditions of man nor did he receive it from the other apostles. No, Paul states these words. Look with me again at verse 11 and 12 of Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul confirms the source, the authority, and the authorship of his gospel message. It's divinely inspired. Paul received his message from Christ, and it has authority not because Paul preached it, not because it's from Paul, but because it's the Lord's message, and it's being delivered by the Lord's messenger. It's worth noting that in Jewish culture, rabbis often passed down instruction and teaching through oral tradition or oral account. And here, Paul, who is defending his ministry against the Judaizers, states plainly that his message was not given to him by man at all, but rather by a revelation from the Son of God. The gospel is authoritative because it has been revealed by God. And Paul is drawing a clear line between what he preached and what the false teachers among the Galatians were teaching. The apostle wants his readers to understand that the gospel that he preached is not like the man-made one 
that is being circulated among the churches by these Judaizing false teachers. The Judaizers were conflating the law and gospel, legalism and grace. The false teachers demanded that believers obey the law, that they do things. They had to do certain actions. But Paul preached that one is not saved by his works at all, but by God's grace. In these two different messages, we see the emphasis clearly placed on different things. I think it's quite obvious, but man's message places much of the emphasis on the works of man. What he must do, how he must act. But the gospel acknowledges that man can do nothing. Man can do nothing, and it is purely God's love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace which saves sinners by faith in Christ. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Look with me to verses 13 and 14 of our text today. Paul says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. As Paul is being accused, it's interesting because to know the Apostle Paul's background is to know that he was not a man who could have simply, by ignorance or lack of knowledge, left out the law from his gospel message that he preached. That's not possible if you know Paul's history, Paul's background. Before his conversion, Paul, who at that time was still known as Saul, was a devout and zealous Pharisee. The New Testament often speaks of Pharisees and Sadducees, but if you don't know, the Pharisees were a sect within Judaism, one of several groups making up the Sanhedrin, which was the religious assembly of priests and rabbis and leaders, which functioned as the religious court for all matters of law and judgment for the people of Israel. Every small town where there was at least 120 men who were heads of household had a local court known as a Sanhedrin. And above these local Sanhedrins was the great Sanhedrin, which met at the temple in Jerusalem and acted as the higher court. Back to Paul, who was a Pharisee. The Pharisees specifically placed great emphasis on strict observance of all of the more than 600 laws contained within the writings of Moses. There's an emphasis on obeying them all. This is why we often hear in Scripture about the Pharisees being uh, legalistic and very outward because you had to obey all these rules. The Pharisees, interestingly enough, also accepted oral tradition handed down by rabbis. This was a huge part of their learning. It wasn't just God's word. They sat at the feet of the rabbis who passed down the learning. This is why in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, the apostle Paul tells a group in the temple in Jerusalem 
that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law. Paul sat at this rabbi's feet and learned from him. Gamaliel was a well-respected leader in the great Sanhedrin. And Paul reminds the Galatian readers that as a devout Jew and Pharisee, he was a student who had learned from the best. When it came to being a Pharisee, he was educated in the ways of Jerusalem in the equivalent of an Ivy League education. He knew all their ways. He learned under an important and influential leader. Note in verse 14 of Galatians 1, Paul says that he had been advancing in Judaism beyond many who were his age. He had all the potential markings of a fantastic Pharisee. He came from the right family line, he had the right education, and he actively persecuted the Christian church. In the life of a Pharisee, Paul had great prospects. In fact, if we look to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul reminds his readers in that epistle that as far as Jewish credentials go, he had reasons to be confident. He says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. We know that Paul is not boasting of his Jewish credentials here, but he is saying that as a Jew, he could have reason to boast. Now back to the letter to the Galatians. Note that in verse 14 again of Galatians 1, Paul said he was zealous for what? For the traditions of his fathers. He didn't say that he had been zealous for the word of God. His Pharisaic zeal was for the traditions of man and for the adherence to the outward keeping of the law and for sitting at the feet of rabbis who also kept those traditions of man. That's where his zeal was. We also know that Paul had been a great persecutor of the early church. Look back to verse 13 in Galatians 1. Paul admits that in his zeal, he had persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. We can look to the book of Acts for greater clarity here. Acts chapter 7. Look to Acts chapter 7 tells us the story of when Stephen was being stoned to death. Paul, who at that time was still known as Saul, was there. And he was holding the garments of those who killed Stephen. Saul was right there. He was close enough to watch over the outer garments of those who'd taken them off so they could more easily fling stones at Stephen, who had preached the gospel of Christ and was now being killed as a martyr for it. Acts chapter 8 tells us that Saul not only approved, but consented to Stephen's killing, and that after Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution of the church broke out. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says this, Paul, or Saul 
was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul had hated the Christian church. Like many of us in this room today, who before the work of Christ in our lives hated the things of God. Saul had been hell-bent and hell-bound. His life reflected a man who hated Christians and sought to see them imprisoned and killed. But as we read, the Lord had other plans. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. The story of Saul's conversion takes place in Acts 9, and if you've never read it or it's been a while, I would encourage you to go home and read it. Christ Jesus the Lord appears to Saul on the road to Damascus in a blinding light from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is blinded and is told to rise and enter the city and he'll be told what he's to do. In the city of Damascus, the Lord tells a disciple named Ananias to uh, go and lay hands on Saul so that he may regain his sight. The Lord tells Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Acts 9 tells us that as soon as Saul regains his sight, he rises, is baptized, and almost immediately begins proclaiming in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Conversion of Saul is beautiful and it's sudden. It displays the mercy and the kindness of God to call even the most unlikely to his service and his kingdom by grace to Christ. In Galatians 1, verse 15, Paul says that God set him apart before he was born. Here we see great biblical doctrine in the sovereignty of and the grace of God. Paul gives all credit for his salvation to God, who he says has set him apart before he had even left his mother's womb. Paul acknowledges that God did a work. Dear friends, God is not passive, but active in the saving of each person who by grace believes through faith in Christ Jesus for salvation. And that should humble us, shouldn't puff us up. Not only did the Lord stop Paul in his tracks and call Paul to stop persecuting the church, but to serve the Lord, but God also gave Paul a revelation to preach the gospel among the Gentiles. Look again at verse 16 and into 17 in Galatians 1. Paul says he did not immediately consult with anyone after his conversion. 
He did not go up to Jerusalem to learn from the apostles there, but he went to Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Paul immediately began preaching and teaching the gospel message he received from Christ the Lord. We look at verses 18 through 20 of our text today. Paul then says this. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Great students and scholars of the Bible have long debated just exactly what Paul might have been up to during these three years after his conversion before he went to Jerusalem. There's different theories, there's different opinions. Some believe maybe he was just contemplating what the Lord had shown him by revelation. Others submit that maybe he was being personally taught by Christ the Lord. But my favorite, in which I believe we see the most clear biblical support for, is best said in this quote from the early church reformer Martin Luther, who when asked what he thought Paul had been up to in these first three years, said this, It's silly to ask what Paul did in Arabia. What else would Paul have done but preach Christ? I agree. Given the suddenness that Acts chapter 9 speaks of, with which the Apostle Paul began preaching in the synagogues after his conversion, we can be confident that whatever he was doing during these three years, it included the preaching of the gospel wherever he went. But after three years of ministry in Arabia and Damascus, Paul does go up to Jerusalem and visit Cephas, that is Peter, and James, the brother of the Lord. But he stays just 15 days with them. Perhaps you're wondering why Paul is telling his Galatian readers that he went to Jerusalem, that he only met with Peter and James, and that he only stayed a little over two weeks with them. Why does that matter? Maybe you're asking that. Why did Paul include that? Remember the context of the letter. Paul is reminding the Galatians of his credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ with a message that he received by revelation from the Lord. Paul's initial interaction with the other apostles was only two weeks long, and it was a full three years after Paul had already begun preaching the gospel message. Paul effectively shuts down the Judaizers' accusation that he was just a pawn, parroting what he'd been taught by followers of Christ and the apostles. No. He preached the gospel long before he went to Jerusalem, long before he met with anybody except the Lord on the road to Damascus. One could say that the apostle Paul had a rock-solid alibi, He was not simply preaching what he'd learned. He preached the gospel long before traveling there. And in verse 20 of Galatians chapter 1, Paul says this, And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. So in addition to every other accusation that the Judaizers have laid against the Apostle Paul, clearly being a liar was also one such accusation that they accused 
Please join me as we look to verses 21 through 24. This is our final section of text today. Galatians 1, 21 through 24. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. After Paul's brief visit with Peter and James in Jerusalem, he traveled north to Syria and Cilicia, preaching to the churches of Judea. Remember the words of our Lord to Ananias about Paul from back in Acts chapter 9. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Here we see Paul faithfully doing that, traveling and proclaiming the gospel as he went. In this portion of Paul's letter, he says that he was still unknown to the churches there. Remember that Paul had not been sent out from the apostles. He did not come with letters of support from Jerusalem. He was not widely known yet as a gospel preacher. In fact, what he was known for was still largely his former life as one who'd ravished and persecuted the Christian church without mercy. But look again at these last two beautiful verses in Galatians chapter 1. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The believers in Judea did not know much about Paul, but they saw a man who had once been known as Saul, a leading Pharisee, a prominent Jew, and a violent persecutor of Christians, who was now boldly preaching and proclaiming the very thing that he had fought so hard to tear down. That's a testimony. One of the greatest threats to the gathered church was now in their midst, passionately preaching Christ. Verse 24, they glorified God. The church made up of believers because they saw in a life clearly transformed by the work of Christ, the work of the gospel, they gave God glory. Didn't matter what Paul had done, they saw the work that the Lord did. Friends, man gets no credit, no honorable mention, and no glory for himself in the redeeming work of the Lord in calling and saving sinners. The clear, evident work of God is credited to God alone. And Paul defends that against his accusers in his own life, in his ministry, and in his preaching of not man's gospel, but God's gospel. So as we come to the end of our text today, how do we apply it to our lives? If we only read and hear the word and there's no application of it in our own lives, we've missed something very important. So now what? I have three application points for us to consider today. First, 
What gospel do you believe and proclaim? The Apostle Paul preached the gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by man's works, so that no man can boast. Is this the gospel you believe? Or is it man's gospel? A false gospel. Like the Judaizers, do you place any focus on man's ability or your ability to obey, to do, to be good enough? Dear ones, a gospel that requires man's good works is a false gospel that will save no one. And it will condemn everyone who tries to keep it. Romans 3.20 tells us that. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Man's gospel makes much of man, but the true gospel makes much of Christ Jesus, the Savior. What gospel do you believe? And what gospel do you proclaim to those around you? Is good deeds and actions play any role in it? It's about Christ, and it must be. Second, the church in Judea, though they did not know Paul, they knew of his former life, and therefore they gave glory to God, acknowledging that he who used to persecute the church now preached the faith he once tried to destroy. Do others glorify God because of changes seen in your life? Are there evident changes in you that draw those around you to give glory to God? If not, why? Do you know the Savior? Do you know the Lord? If you do, cling to Christ. Hold fast to the Word of God and be transformed and renewed daily, depending solely upon Him. Forget what is behind. Start today, this day, living to bring the Savior glory for what he has done and will continue to do by working in your life. Third, this one's hard. Will you glorify God when an enemy becomes a friend at the foot of the cross? The churches in Judea had plenty of reasons to despise Paul. A man who had done terrible, horrible, murderous things to Christians. But instead they praised God for redeeming him. What about you? What about us? Will you glorify God if he saves that person who has hurt you, who has harmed you, who has wronged you and those you love? Consider that. Churches in Judea praised God that a man who had imprisoned and killed many of them was now preaching that faith. If we truly understand that we have done nothing to deserve our salvation, then how can we not glorify God when he saves even the worst of us who has perhaps even wronged some of us? In closing, perhaps today you're not sure where you stand with God. Or maybe you've realized that you have not been saved by his grace. 
And you have been trying to do things by your works and be good enough. I would encourage you, do not delay. Call upon the Lord and place your faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul, in his life, gives us hope that no person is too great a sinner to be saved by so great a Savior as Christ Jesus the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for saving fallen, needy sinners. Though we often complicate the gospel, thinking we must contribute something to our salvation, it is and has always been about what your Son has done. Father, forgive us. Lord, sanctify us. Let there be evidence of your work in our lives that others may praise you and believe. Father, help us to forgive others and to truly rejoice in your redeeming work, no matter who you save. Help us remember that we are no more deserving of your free gift of grace than any other. But Lord, we thank you for it. God, in every good thing we have, it comes from you, with whom there is no shadow due to change. To you alone be glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.